Well, we are on Palm Sunday, and I just wonder if you know the story behind the Palm Sunday story. The palms and all of the celebration that we've just participated in, uh, well, do you know the story behind all of that? Because it may be a familiar story and yet also an unfamiliar story as well. So the way it happened is on the Sunday before Easter, Jesus approached Jerusalem with his disciples, and as they approached the city, Jesus instructed them to find a donkey, one that had never yet been ridden before. He got on it and he rode into the city, and when they arrived, they were greeted by a large crowd, much like we have here this morning, including children as well. And they spread their cloaks on the ground, and they waved palm branches like the ones that you have here today. And they shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest heaven. And if you've ever heard a story like this, maybe you've wondered, what's behind the scenes? Why were they so excited? Why were they celebrating that day? And the answer is, goes back actually hundreds of years. Jesus entered Jerusalem during a time, a feast called Passover. Passover first took place when the Israelites were in the nation of Israel. They were slaves. They had been there for many, many years. They'd been oppressed and mistreated. They cried out to God, they prayed, and he heard their prayer. And he sent them a leader named Moses. God used Moses to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt to freedom, into a new land. And it became the defining moment in the nation's history. It's much like our American Revolution, only even bigger. The significance was not just political, but spiritual as well. And that established their national, political, and spiritual identity. In that new land, they became a mighty nation. And each year, they celebrated Passover to remember to be reminded of how God had delivered them from the Egyptians. But those days were long gone. By the time Jesus arrived on the scene, they no longer had political autonomy. They were controlled by the Romans, and it was humiliating and embarrassing. So when they came to this time of Passover, when they looked back, they looked back on this time when God had delivered them from the Egyptians, they also began to look forward. They longed for a new exodus, They longed for a time that there would be a new Moses, a new leader like King David who would lead them politically, militarily, and spiritually into a new glorious age. And so each year they asked the question, is this the year? Is this the year when God will send a Messiah, anointed one, to lead us out of slavery into a new glorious age? And so the prophets told them that this person was coming. And he even gave them clues, or many of the prophets gave them clues about what this new leader would look like. And one of those examples came in Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah said this, he said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So he was telling them what it would look like. And so if you've heard that and those words were echoing in your mind, imagine what it would be when you would one day arrive in Jerusalem and see a scene that looked almost like this. John tells this story in John chapter 12. We've read from one of the other biographies. Let me read from John's version of the story. It says, The great crowd had come for the festival and heard what Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches, just like the ones all of you are holding, and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So there's nothing subtle at all about what Jesus is doing. An informed Jew would have immediately seen and immediately understood what Jesus was claiming, 
that he was God's anointed, the Messiah, the king they'd long expected. And they were welcoming him with the, a first century version of a ticker tape parade, although it was palm branches and coats put on the ground. The disciples must have been beside themselves and the buzz in the city must have been electric. Here was the one who was to deliver them from Roman rule, to restore the temple to its past glory, to bring spiritual renewal. And so if you can imagine for a moment just being part of the crowd, um, how thrilling it might have been to have been able to wave a palm branch as Jesus walked by. Well, the first part of our service this morning has been designed to capture the enthusiasm and joy that those uh, early followers of Jesus had on Palm Sunday when they welcomed him into Jerusalem. But you may know that the story wasn't quite so simple because while the crowd welcomed him on uh, Sunday morning, by Friday afternoon, Jesus would be dead. These things uh, often are said to prove the fickleness of crowds. One minute they're for you and the next minute they want to throw the bum out. So when the twins or the Timberwolves or the Vikings announce a new coach or trade for a star, everyone has high expectations. They win the press conference and two years later, after a string of losses, they want to throw the bum out. And the sports uh, radio is full of those who want that coach or that player dismissed. But is that right? Is the Palm Sunday crowd the same crowd, fickle crowd, that then a few days later was shouting, crucify him? Well, the answer is no. The Palm Sunday people weren't fickle at all. Why? Because a large crowd that welcomed Jesus on Palm Sunday is not the same crowd that shouted crucify him while Pilate dithered about what to do. Apart from the fact that the word crowd is used in both stories, we're most likely talking about two large crowds. One made up of the average Josephs and Marys of that day, and another made up of chief priests and scribes and elders and Pharisees and Sadducees, and a few assorted false witnesses recruited by threat or bribe to bring stories about Jesus that would be designed to incriminate him. The first group, the regular folks, as opposed to the power-protecting religious leaders, perceived that something great and glorious was happening. Someone was among them who was perhaps the Messiah, the anointed one. And bursting with joy, they shouted Hosanna as Jesus made his way into the city of Jerusalem. Now, qualification here, and that is that the crowd that welcomed him didn't really understand him. They thought of him as a prophet sent from God, but they didn't understand that his mission included becoming a suffering savior and dying on a cross. But there is little evidence that they are the same crowd that screamed and shouted and demanded his execution just a few days later. Now, if you think about it logically, it makes sense. Sure, people can be fickle. Sometimes you're fickle, sometimes I'm fickle, but typically we don't change our minds overnight. In fact, it can take long periods of time for us to change our minds about anything, if ever. Just think, and this is not a partisan comment, of how enduring our political opinions are, even in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary. So when we have two separate crowds, one made up of everyday folks enthralled with Jesus and another made up of the religious establishment who didn't like Jesus, maybe it changes the way we see the story of the events of Thursday into Friday morning. I want to read to you from, uh, again, from John chapter 12, just the last couple of verses on the Palm Sunday story, because it gives you a clue about what's to come. This is John chapter 12, verses 18 and 19, and it says, many people went out to meet him. 
So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us no place. See how the whole world has gone after him. So this crowd, this crowd of the religious establishment was upset because they realized that they needed to do something, at least according to the way they thought, but they couldn't do anything in the moment, but they also couldn't wait any longer. This had reached a tipping point for them. So they started working behind the scenes to get rid of him. Now, some of you have read the biographies of Jesus, and you know that one of the things they did is they came up with a set of carefully formulated questions that would try to put him in a bind. So he would end up saying something that would discredit him with the crowd that was for him. Well, that backfired. It made Jesus even only more popular and made them even angrier. So then they tried putting, putting pressure on the average folks to help them to abandon their support for him. They said, if you celebrate him, we'll kick you out of the synagogues. It was a strategy that was a bit more successful, but still many continued to follow Jesus or at least be interested in him. So when open opposition and public pressure didn't work, they plotted in secret to have him eliminated. Why secrecy? Well, because they feared the crowd. That is, they feared the crowd that was supportive of Jesus. So again, here's two crowds. The religious leader crowd feared the average Joseph crowd. And they plotted in secrecy to bring Jesus down. Matthew put it this way in Matthew 26, verses 4 and 5. They schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him, but not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. That's the first crowd. And this is where that fickleness notion goes off the rails. The religious leaders were never for Jesus, for months, years even. He'd been on their hit list, so their opposition wasn't new. It's just because of the popularity with the average folks that they were having trouble doing anything to get rid of him. The rest of the story, Jesus' arrest, the various trials, his conviction, his crucifixion, unfolded at night or in the early morning when people were asleep and unaware of what was going on. By the time they awoke the next morning, Jesus' arrest and trial were over, and by noon, Jesus was crucified before the crowd even had a chance to understand what was happening. John tells us that from the beginning of the end began in a garden just across the valley from Jerusalem. It's a short distance, and he'd gone there with his disciples to pray. I want to read to you from John chapter 18. I'll begin reading around verse 3. And if you'd like to follow along, it's on page 1647 in your pew Bible, 1647, although the words will also be on the, on the screen. John tells us there that Judas, one of his disciples who'd been close to Jesus, came to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. By the way, uh, experts tell us that the force probably numbered between two and 600. So this isn't just a small little group of people. This is a sizable group of soldiers. It says they were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was about to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he. By the way, I am, if you go all the way back to the book of Exodus, when Moses asked God who he was. God said, I am. Jesus is saying, I am he. In other words, I'm God. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. From there, Jesus was taken to a gathering of religious leaders. They began interrogating him, again, trying to catch him saying something that would give them an excuse to accuse him of heresy or treason. But he didn't say much other than to remind them, 
I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I've always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I say nothing in secret. But why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. That didn't go over so well because when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? From there, they take him to Caiaphas, the high priest. And after hours of questioning, he was taken at 6 a.m. to see Pilate, the Roman governor. Now, initially, Pilate was confused and more than a little annoyed to be brought into what he saw as an internal dispute. What charges are you bringing against this man, Pilate asked. And their answer is evasive. They say, if, it were, if he were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. In other words, they're saying, just trust us, he is. And Pilate shot back to them, then take him yourself and judge him by your own law. In other words, he's just saying, you're going to have to do better than that. But they stammered, we don't have the right to execute anyone. And Pilate just glared at them. The Jewish authorities had failed to do their homework. They weren't prepared. So Pilate decided to do his own investigation. He brings Jesus into the palace and he says, are you the king of the Jews? Now, what must have happened in the interim is that the Jewish leaders must have quickly made a list of accusations, things like subversion, the opposition to paying taxes, might have said that he was trying to incite, um, incite a violent insurrection. Because Pilate's question for Jesus, are you someone who's trying, is really, are you tr someone who's trying to undermine Caesar's authority? And Jesus sees through this right back to the Jewish authorities. He says, is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? Now, what Pilate implies here is, yeah, sure, it's a question that came from them, but you got to help me here. I'm not a Jew. I don't understand what's going on. Your leaders are the ones who've handed you over to me. And so he asks him directly, what is it you've done? And with this, Jesus goes back to Pilate's original question, are you the king of the Jews? And he answers, yes, my kingdom, he says, is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. Pilate is even more confused, relieved to hear that he's not plotting an insurrection, but he doesn't understand this part about a spiritual kingdom. You're a king then. Jesus says, yes, in fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate sort of throws up his hands and says, what is truth? Kind of a postmodern comment. With this, Jesus says, he went out again to the Jews and gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. And Pilate thought that would end the matter. Clearly, this was a petty religious squabble. And then almost as a throwaway, he came up with an idea, something he thought would placate their desire for blood. Pilate had right then in jail a man named Barabbas who was being held for insurrection and murder. He was awaiting sentencing, most likely to be uh, sentenced to death. So Pilate decided to give the people the choice. Barabbas the terrorist or Jesus, the one who claimed to be the Messiah. And the evidence against Barabbas was overwhelming. In Pilate's estimation, Jesus had done nothing wrong than get on the wrong side of an angry mob. So he asked them, Barabbas or Jesus, certain they would choose Jesus over this violent, murderous man. But he was wrong, as it turns out, tragically wrong, because they said, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. And then Pilate tried one more tactic. He's uh, stalling, really, when he decides to have Jesus flogged. Under any circumstances, whipping is brutal, but the way the Romans did it was even worse. 
What they would do is tie a victim to a post, and then the thongs, the ends of the whip, would be embedded either with shreds of bone or with pieces of metal, and they would whip the victim. It wasn't uncommon for a prisoner to die in the process. So they whip Jesus. After being flogged, the soldiers have some fun with him. They take um, some twigs from a bush that had long thorns, and they push those into his head. Then they put a purple robe on him and began to taunt him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and hit him in the face. Pilate hoped that this flogging would satisfy their thirst for blood. But as he presented them with Jesus, beaten and bloody, he was wrong. Paraphrasing Pilate, he says, I haven't found him guilty of any crime. And as soon as the religious leaders saw Jesus, they shouted, crucify him. Pilate says, you do it. But they knew they couldn't. Roman law prohibited it. So they persisted. We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. Exasperated, Pilate turns back to Jesus and he says, where did you come from? Jesus refused to answer. And after an uncomfortably long silence, Pilate asked Jesus angrily, do do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or crucify you? And with this, Jesus broke the silence. He said, you'd have no power over me if it were not given you from above. The situation at this point is almost out of control. Pilate's flummoxed by this angry crowd, and every attempt to make the right decision and release this clearly innocent man is met with another angry outburst from the crowd. And if the crowd rioted, it wouldn't look good for him. The whole goal of Roman rule was to keep the peace, or at least to keep things under control, to maintain order. And a riot would not look good on his annual report. Now, the buck stops here with Pilate. He's the final ultimate authority, the only one who can make a final decision. And yet he feels powerless. This prisoner, the one bound and shackled before him, the one who's been beaten with an inch of his life, has told him, power, you think you have power over me? The only power you have comes from God. And so Pilate tries one more time to set him free. But the Jewish authorities continue to shout, crucify him. And then in a statement filled with irony, the leaders say, we have no king but Caesar. These men who hate Caesar more than anything else have just shown that they hate one more person. They hate him worse than Caesar, and that's Jesus. Because what they do is commit blasphemy themselves by saying that Caesar does indeed have authority over them, that he is their king. At this point, Pilate realizes he's getting nowhere. And so after stalling for hours, he sees that the crowd is about to riot. So he directs the soldiers to take Jesus from that place and have him crucified. It's the act of a coward because he simply didn't have the courage to do the right thing. We've talked today about two crowds, one for and one against Jesus. But really, the central character in this story is one man, the man in the middle, and that's Jesus. What's clear here is that it wasn't a crowd who controlled the events of that day. It's Jesus. He went willingly to the cross. At a number of different points in the story, he could have said or done something that would have completely placated everyone. But he didn't. Jesus knew his purpose, and he knew he needed to go to the cross. The mob wanted his life, and they get it. But in the process, unwittingly, they made a way to set all of humanity free. We get a little picture of this in the story. Barabbas is a man who's destined to die on a cross that very afternoon. Now, I don't say that Judas or that Barabbas was necessarily justified, or they were justified in execution, but they certainly were justified in, commit, in, in carrying out some form of punishment for him because what he'd done was deplorable. 
But what happened instead of Barabbas dying that afternoon was Jesus died in his place. And not just for Barabbas, for the whole world and for you and for me. So at the beginning of Holy Week on what we now call Palm Sunday, the day we celebrate today, a crowd did cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. And at the end of the week, another crowd cried out, take him away, take him away, crucify him. And Jesus went to the cross for both crowds. The crowd who liked him but didn't understand him and the crowd who opposed him, the ones who ended up putting him on the cross, but to whom he continued to extend his love and grace. In a moment, we're going to sing a hymn. It's an old hymn, uh, one that you may or may not know. The words were written over 300 years ago by a man named Isaac Watts. And the words look forward to what we're going to celebrate this weekend or this, this next week on Good Friday when Jesus went to death on the cross. And I want to read three verses from this. The first two talk about the events of Good Friday. It says, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. See, from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? And then this last verse talks about how we respond to what Jesus did. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Demands my soul, my life, my all. So what we have in this story is two crowds and one lonely Jesus going obediently to his death on the cross. And the only thing left for us to do is to give our lives to him. Let's pray. Father, we can be fickle people, but more often we're just stubborn. Father, may we open our hearts like the crowd that welcomed Jesus on Palm Sunday. But may we see Jesus for who he really is, the one who was willing to endure the wrath of an angry mob in order to set us free. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.